How many of you know what this is? It's a charge cord. Does just having this in your room do anything? Maybe I could just set it on top of my Bible. Does that work? Why doesn't that work, Dorla? Because it's not connected to the power. So if I put it in there, how, how, how about now? Okay. So just having a power cord doesn't actually do anything. That's the lesson for those of you who are novice cell phone users. You got to plug them in every so often, right? My question about this formalism or legalism, where does legalism fail? And I'm going to tell you this before we read the scripture, that legalism always fails in my estimation for three reasons or in three places, if you will. Okay, the first one is that when you're going through the motions, pretty soon you will recognize that those motions don't actually have any effect and you'll quit. Any experience with that? You're just doing stuff and pretty soon you notice it doesn't do anything. You go, I'm not doing that. It's kind of the New Year's resolution thing. The second thing is is that God actually isn't interested in your formalism and it doesn't work from the other side. He's not interested in you going through the motions in a relationship and then not actually having the relationship. He's just not interested in it. And so it doesn't help you there either. The third one will wait for a little bit. Okay, I just want to keep you hanging for a second. Grab on, grab the pew in front of you. No. So how many of you, if I were to say legalism or formalism, know what that is? Most everybody? If I were to say it this way, it's a concern or an excessive concern with form and technique rather than content. Does that sort of say it to you or is that too fancy? My example of formalism is this, just in a relationship sense. Um, Years ago, I was part of a church that went from 100 people to 2,500 people in seven years. Okay, so they are now a church with four satellite locations because you can't build parking lots big enough to put them in one location. And so they put them in lots of locations and they videotape the thing in in the Tri-Cities. Well, I was in the Tri-Cities just recently and I ran into somebody from that church. And this is the type of relationships that relationship that we didn't actually have, okay? They ran into me and they said this, wow, I haven't seen you for a while. Do you still go to the church? Well, 1990, you know, I think it was 93 or something like that when, when we stopped, when, when something happened and, and um, seminary changed where things, you know, it's just life, life happens and sometimes you have to change something in your life. But we didn't really have a relationship, did we? If he thought, well, I haven't seen you in 17 years. Do you still go to the church? Right? So sometimes big churches, and you know that churches, the church size matters, and that the bigger the church is, the more difficult relationships are and things like that. The general rule is you can know about 200 people in a church, and if there's 400 people in the church, you can know about 200 of them. Well, my thought is, is when it gets to about 2,500 or 3,000 or something like that, you can know about 100 of them because the crowd makes it more difficult. 
But it's a sort of formalism where I end up saying something like this. Well, I drive past their house every day. I kind of know them. Is that how you know somebody? Do you know people that you drive past? You drive past lots lots of houses every day, don't you? Do you know everything about what's going on in their lives? Would you consider them helpful? Maybe maybe you need somebody to watch your kids while you go to the hospital. You've driven past their house all the time. The lawn's mowed. You could drop them there. So that's not a relationship, is it? So so let's first start talking this. I want to read some scripture from from uh, Luke this morning. This is Luke fourteen, and and it has to do with a meal and relationships and formalism, and and we'll kind of talk about it as we go. Okay. This is the beginning of Luke 14. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to a dinner in the home of the leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. First off, I want to sort of alert you to something. The the term meal here is really a feast, a feast on the Sabbath day in somebody's house or a dinner. Somebody's working, right? Those of you who served Thanksgiving dinners, um, and those of you who have had a spouse that hosted, that's kind of my specialty. Karen works behind the scenes, and I kind of wander around and flit in the company. She's working, but it's on the Sabbath. And there was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen, and Jesus asked the Pharisees and the, regi- and the experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? Now, I want to make sure that we we think about this in the way that the scripture is sort of talking about it. This is not, um, I fell on the way to church and broke my arm, please help me. This was considered a chronic problem. Somebody that's in their midst has a problem consistently. And what do you think their ideas are around scripture and in the rabbinical writings about this? I'll tell you. It's not a chronic problem. Interrupt and get healed on another day. That's kind of their attitude. <laughs> That's my commentary on the thing. Really? Okay, but here we go. I, I, I want to I make sure that, that we, that we kind of get this thing. I, wanna, I want another aspect in mind. Um, if, if you're ever in a meeting and you bring up an idea and the room goes silent, is that a good thing for your idea? It's not the same in our culture as it was in their culture. In their culture, silence kind of meant agreement. That's not what it means in our room. If you're in a meeting and you bring up an idea, hey, let's do this, and everybody goes. That's um, not now, not ever, right? So it's the opposite. But in their culture, this was. So when you hear this stuff, and they refuse to answer. Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away and then turned to them and says, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or a cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? And again, they didn't answer. Well, they did have some answers. Here's a a direct quote from um, some writings from Qumran. No man shall assist a beast to give birth on the Sabbath day, and if that beast should fall into into a cistern or a pit, he shall not lift it out on the Sabbath. Period. Okay, so 
You know what a cistern is, right? It's the spot where you hold water. If your cow falls into the cistern, what's likely to happen? Drown. Okay, so can you help get it out? Do it on another day. Well, if your cow dies in your cistern, what do you have? Other than a dead cow and the loss of money, you've got a cistern that is not okay. Right? Your cistern is fouled. Just, I'm just sort of pointing out the, the problems that sometimes uh, following rules, this is the Qumran writings are not necessarily um, scriptural writings. These are how do you follow the scripture? And so they were giving you rules. And, and you've been around this in your life, haven't you? That you've got a rule, there's something you must not do, and so you make up a slightly different rule nearby to make sure that you don't cross that boundary because then you'd be safe to not cross the other one. That's kind of what they're doing. We, we need to not work, and so we need to make these little rules out here so that it, once you start doing those things, you know you're breaking the, breaking the laws. And again, they could not answer. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were sitting at, were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't just sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you also is invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat, and then you will be embarrassed and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. This is interesting. We're kind of talking about front rows in church just recently, Marika and Karen and I and everything. So if you go to a wedding and you're not family of the groom, but you decide you want to see the best, and you come up and you sit right here, what's going to happen to you? You're in, an usher is going to come up to you and go, excuse me. Nobody in the family knows who you are. <laughs> you should move back. Not just embarrassing faux pas, right? I'm not saying this is happening. My problem is in our family, what's our problem? The McHugh family is massive, right? So how do you save enough rows for the McHughes when you're in the Tri-Cities? Because when the pews are, take 14 people and you need five of them, what does that do to your, your church? So our families, we, we're not getting five, are we? No. Those of you who know, this is my daughter, Marika, if you didn't know that. And she's getting married in July, and so we're doing this stuff. But this is what he's talking. I'm just sort of working through the text slowly here for you. Where was I? Instead, take the lowest place. So, so say you're the mother of the bride, but you sit back there. What are they going to do? And if somebody's sitting in their spot, they're going to go, just reality, right? And you've seen this. This plays itself out not just in weddings, but in other locations. It's not just about seeking the best seat, though. What if every time you're anywhere, you seek to be everything to the conversation? Right? There's some hyperbole here going on. Friends, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then he turned to the host. 
when you put on a luncheon and a banquet, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your reward. Instead, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Okay, we're talking about what do you do and what, what do you do just as a way, a matter of code of acting that is different from relationships, seeking relationships? I want to I go just a little bit further, and then I'm going to stop, okay? Hearing this, a man sitting at the table of Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend the banquet in the kingdom of God. Well, that, yeah, cool. What a blessing it will be to do that. So Jesus says a story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations, and when the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come to the banquet, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses and said, one said, I've bought a field and I must um, inspect it. Another said, please excuse me, I've bought five new oxen and I need to try them out. Another says, I have a wife, so I can't come. Now, these, ex- these, these excuses, if you look to Deuteronomy, are the reason why you can't go to war. But this is a banquet, right? Is, are banquets like wars? Well, they are, when you're invi- they are when you're invited on a Sabbath day and everybody is watching you closely. Remember the beginning of the text here. So they are like that. The servant returned and told the master what they had said. And the master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And after the servants had done this, they reported there's still more room. So he said, go into the country lanes and behind the hedges, because that's where all the good people live, right behind the hedges. And urge anyone you find to come into the house so that my house will be full. Here's the punchline. For none of those I invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Formalism. He who dies with the most toys, right, still dies. He who dies with the most toys dies owned by his toys. That's what's going on here. I've got five new oxen. I don't really want to go to the banquet. I know I know he's done great things, and this is to honor him and somebody else's honor, but I've got my own stuff to do. And I'm Saul. When they're looking to make me king, the text back in First Samuel says he was lost in the stuff. They couldn't find him. He was hiding in the stuff. He was supposed to be king, right? Head and shoulder above everybody else, better looking than everybody else, right? But he was not sort of available to be honored because he had his own stuff. Formalism, legalism. Um, bring your healing in on another day, will you? I know we could take care of that right now, but don't bother us on this day. And you've heard me talk about this at length. Which, one, which of us is less important to God than the rituals we do? Not, 
All of us are more important to God. He made you and he doesn't make junk and he doesn't want you thrown away by a process that says, well, that's great, but right now we're singing a song and we're not going to interrupt anything for that. So, formalism. The first thing, the first way formalism fails us when we practice it, okay? Formalism fails us when we practice it because we're doing things with an empty ritual hoping to get a result later down the road. And they fail us for this reason. Are you ready? Remember? I keep doing stuff, and I notice that it doesn't, it doesn't really work in my life. So what, what do I do? I quit. Here, here's, here's an example. You've got a vacuum cleaner, and every time you push it stuff, it just pushes stuff around, but it never picks it up. Are you going to quit? keep using that vacuum cleaner? Why? Because you've got better ways to b- strengthen your arm? Right? If it doesn't work, you fix it or you get rid of it or you get something that works. Formal rituals. I keep putting my quarter in God's pot machine and I, until I get the one I want. What does formalism do in our lives? It, it's, it, it changes the way God is. Can you show that slide for me, Jackie? This is a song I was listening to the other day, and I'm, and I'm prepping for this thing, and it's just changing everything. This is a song from David Crowder. It's not a famous song. This is the first line. This is a, he's talking to God. I used to shake you like an eight ball. Do you remember the black eight balls when you were kids and it had like six answers in it? And you say, will this happen for me? And whatever came up was the answer, you know, because the little cube spun just right in the, right? Am, am I just odd or do anybody else remember that? Okay. By the way, does that sound a little bit like, uh, like flipping a coin to see something or, or maybe checking your horoscope that was written by somebody seven months ago that didn't have anything to do? Oh, no, never mind. Sorry. I used to shoot you like a gun. How many of you shoot God like a gun? You just load him in and you just go, well, God will take care. No relationship, no understanding what's going on. I used to hold you like a hammer and try to nail everyone down. All the ways that relationships sort of fail in our lives with God well, you know, they're not right with God, and, or I need to ask them six questions to make sure they're right with God before I do anything for them. To hold you like a hammer and nail other people down. These are, these are sort of ineffective, um, immature uses of God, if, if you will. Do you know what the cure for all of these are? I used to keep you in a steeple. I used to bind you in a book, Right? I got my Bible, and I put it on the shelf, and I got a whole bunch of them. But I never take them down and read them. I just keep them in there. And every so often, if I do read them, I'll go like this. I'll flip through the pages. It doesn't work electronically. Here, let's try this. Let's say for a second this is a Bible. I wonder what God has for me today. Well, it's true, this is in his word, and he does want it in your life today and all this stuff. But maybe, you know, and Jesus wept isn't the moment for you. 
when you're wondering whether or not you've got a new job opportunity and whether or not you should move and all those things. Maybe um, dipping your finger in the text doesn't work. This is a hymnal, so it really didn't work. These rituals, the I love this. You take a prescription and you don't know what it does. I have a really funny story about a friend that took a prescription in mainland China that he didn't know what it was. I'm not, you ask me about it later. It's not quite right for prime time. You know, sometimes their medicines do, <laughs> their medicines are different than the way ours are, and they do things that they think, uh, they think something else will work. These empty rituals that we do, the things we do without the relationship behind them, they always fail because they're not real. So here's the other thing. Our God won't have any part of an empty ritual life. What's this line, the punchline in the scripture there? My house will be full because those I invited who didn't accept the invitation will get none of it. You think that's a strong word? I hope you think that's a strong word. I invited them to come and all they had was excuses. I don't want it. Well, you might be thinking that God, well, what does that mean for God? Well, God's pretty harsh about that, but I want you to understand it from this other perspective. If God was after soulless robots that just did what he said without loving him back, he could have made that happen. He's God. But since his goal was a loving people that were called by his name and known by his purpose, he gives you opportunities to do that and come through and invites you in. For me, he kind of beat the hedgerow and said, come out behind the hedge and come on in. And he does that, but he won't have any of the emptiness. He says things like, but I used to say, Lord, 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 and, and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the purpose of empty ritual in our lives. Okay, so here's the third kind of piggyback reason why empty rituals and formalism doesn't work in our lives. Okay? How many of you are standing, how many of you have a standing in Christ based on how good you are and how well you understand theology? Let me ask you that question again. How many of you have a standing with God that has anything to do with your merit? Me either, still. Okay, so I don't get, even later, say, say, this is the example I used in the first service of how God came to get me. I was essentially the kid in the corner of the living room, finger painting on the wall with permanent paint. Right? And God sort of kneeled into my life and said, let's not use permanent paint next time. Let's use stuff that can be washed off. And then he started changing other behaviors in my life. And pretty soon it was, you know, you don't really need to do that on the wall. We'll buy you a little palette and you can learn how to paint that way. And those of you who know that I'm an artist can see the thing. But now, now that I know him, now that I know God well, 
at least I hope I know him well, and I, and I long to know him better, I still don't have a standing in Christ based on my knowledge. My standing in Christ still is based on the little kid making on the mess, and God came over and said, can we not make this mess anymore? That's where my standing in Christ comes from. Not in how much I know or how much of the scripture I know or how well I'm able to tell stories about him. It, it's always based on the relationship that says, I needed help and he came and now I love him dearly. And anything other than that just breaks down in our lives. So what are the three reasons that why we don't just show up here because we hope it makes God happy with us? One, because we'll notice that it doesn't work, right? Good things happen to good people only, right? Only good things happen to good people, right? Have you done really good things and only had good things happen to you? Come on, real life here, right? How about this? Have you done bad things and not had bad things happen to you? I said this before the service to Jackie. Did you ever speed on the highway and not get caught? Then you've done bad things and not had bad things happen to you. Yeah? It's mercy, right? But the problem on driving on the road is this. We all ask for mercy for ourselves and judgment for everybody in our way. (laughs) Right? Our standing in Christ doesn't come up from what we do. It comes from what he's done. And even though you come then to church, you don't do that to then earn his favor. That way you do come because you love him deeply. And you have this relationship. And relationships take time and work. And, and, and you know when somebody hasn't done the work in the same way that God knows when somebody hasn't done the work with him. Right? When I talk to the guy in the Tri Cities and says, Do you still go to our church? And it's been 18 years, I know that there's no real relationship there. Right? There isn't. We're acquaintances. It's good. It's good to have acquaintances. It's not a bad thing. Just recognize that it's an acquaintance, not a friendship, not not a relationship. And the third one is to always remember that our standing in Christ comes from what he's done. And it doesn't change once we meet him. It's always what he's done in our lives. Always, ever, forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for the chance to take a look at my life, our lives, and check to see where we are in that relationship. I thank you for a church that's patient with me when I go over time. In your precious name, amen.